0: It was uh, probably uh, it was uh, yeah mid mid 2009. I um, I woke up in the middle of the night and what I would call today is probably my my crisis of faith uh, moment that I had um, where up until that point um, my only uh, my only understanding of uh, as of living as a as a Christian as being a follower of Christ uh, was to look at people who, who I thought were really good Christian people. Like they kind of, they, I just noticed them that they were walking in faith and they were trying to be faithful um, and they knew their, their, they knew their word and they tried to obey it. Like So I picked out those few people and I said, okay, um, that's, that's what following Jesus looks like. So that's what I'll try to do. I'll try to emulate how they live their life and how they live out their walk and live out their faith. Um, and so I, I became a believer when I was 23 years old, um, and that was like a handful of years, about five years. I don't remember. I can't put the exactly uh, what year it was. Anyway, so I was... Um, I was 23 years old when I became a believer, and then we—I I trekked for about five years doing that very thing, like understanding how to live as a Christian uh, by just looking at other people and emulating them. Um, and then uh, it was uh, probably around 2000. Oh, I say eight, 2007, 2008. Um, I, I felt like it was. Um, important to be reading scripture. And so I I started doing that more often, more frequently, and trying to understand it and try to apply it. Up to that point, um, I I was in scripture whenever I had a a Sunday school teacher teaching me or a a pastor or preacher, someone uh, teaching the word. That was my uh, engagement with scripture. And so I started digging into it for myself. Started looking into it. And it wasn't very long that I had this moment We're in the middle of the night. I had a crisis of faith, and I say a crisis of faith because at that point, um, I realized that what I was doing was just like totally off and left field, that like God didn't want that from me. God wanted, um, he wanted a relationship with me. He didn't want to have like a distant acquaintance with me through someone else um and so through uh, through all of that through through many other circumstances and things that came along after i had that that moment um of just okay i want to be obedient god what do you want me to how how can i be obedient what areas am i not being obedient to uh and and show me those areas and give me the faith give me the power to kind of lean into those and to step into those um i ended up in in, in May of 2010, I ended up in, in Haiti, in northeast Haiti, a uh, friend, of, friend of ours and, and, and I joined a team of about 20 people, um, and we were there to go serve the poorest of the poor um, in, in, in a remote place in northeast Haiti. And it took you know two days trekking in, um, and I'm telling you, we were, in, we were in no man's land for a little while. Um, and when we arrived there, obviously many of you have gone on these short-term mission trips, these, these, uh, these uh, trips where you, for the first time, if you go, you're going with an idea that I'm going to serve and to be a blessing uh, and to show Jesus to people, right? That's your intention when you first step into that. Many of you who've gone know that the minute you step there, uh, you were sent there to be served and to be blessed and to see Jesus, that's kind of how it always seems to work. And so immediately, it was, it was the day, the first evening that I was there, uh, I met a friend. His name was Edne. Um, and I, I got a picture of Edne. This is a buddy of mine, and I haven't been able to keep up with him in the last few years. But he's, he and I made a quick connection when we first got there, and we kind of befriended one another. And for the, the next couple of weeks, um, we, we became really close. But when we met, um, just a, a moment of shame for me. He's talking in some broken English, and he's, he's wanting to communicate with me. And he says, so do you speak Creole? You know, that's their native language. And hey, do you speak Creole French? I said, no, I, I don't. I should. I mean, I live in South Louisiana. It should be, you know, close, but I, I don't. Um, and so he says, okay, well, um, do you speak Spanish? No, I don't, I don't speak Spanish either. Now, he's talking to me in English. And, and English is his least favorite language and so he's trying to find one that he's more comfortable with and so what what brought about so much shame is I'm standing in the poorest country in the western hemisphere among the most poorest people in the world this kid doesn't even have he has a shirt on and underwear like that's all he's got right and so um he's able to communicate three different languages and I'm like man this is just I'm I'm I feel terrible right now you know like wouldn't that make you feel that way? Um, and so he says, "Okay." So he gets over that, and he says, "I'm, I'm going to try to. We're going to try to do this in English, as you know, as much as I don't like to. We'll, we'll talk in English." Um, and he says, "So, so we went with uh, we we, we, uh, we went with a, a, a friend of ours from Mission Waco, uh, and he's just kind of been going there. He and his wife for the last 25 years, and so he's pretty much a, a fixture in that community. When he goes, uh, he's kind of like the rock star. Everybody loves Jimmy, right? Um, and so." Uh, he, he's asking me, he says, uh, are you, are, is Jimmy your dad? I'm like, no, Jim, Jimmy's not my dad. And so he says, well, the, the, the pillar of the community who, who lives there, who he's since passed away, um, was Jackson. And he says, okay, well, are you, is Jackson your, your dad? I said, no, Jackson's not my dad. Jimmy's not my dad. My dad's not here. And he just kind of got quiet for a minute. And he's looking at me. And you could tell he was thinking. And he said, "Well, you can come stay with us." You see, he interpreted that as, "I don't have a dad," because that's very, very common in his in his culture. Right? Orphanage, orphans, uh, uh, and and orphanages are a very common thing in in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And so it was just second nature for him to say, well, if you don't have anywhere to stay, if you don't have a family, you can come be part of our family, and you can come stay with us. To mount on more and more shame, right? Just broken in that moment. I will carry that moment with me for the rest of my life. I will never forget that moment that I had with that, that, that young man who, who didn't have anything, and I have everything. And I show up there as if I'm somebody. And God just totally wrecks my life right there the first day we land in in the place, right? And so you can imagine that I might cringe a little, and I'm just going to tell you that I do cringe a little, when I hear those words, well, you know what? We have to take care of our own first. We have to take care of our own first. We have to to deal with our own situation first. We have to deal with our own issues first. We have to deal with our own families first. First, we have to deal with our own homes first. We have to deal with our own country first before we can help anybody else. So every time I hear that, I think about this conversation that I've had with. That's not his attitude. His attitude was, "Well, we're just going. We're going to get in there together. We're going to do it together, man. This is how it's going to work. We don't have anything, but but what we have is yours." And so I'm not okay with this. I'm just here to tell you that when I hear that, we've got to deal with our own situation first. We've got to take care of our own first. I'm not okay with that. The gospel challenges us to something totally different than that. And that's where we're going head li- to head down this road um, today. Uh, because here's the deal. When we say that, and I've heard this said most recently, a lot. Like, I'm just hearing this a lot. Like, we gotta, we got to deal with our own situation. we got to take care of our own situation first. And then I try to reconcile that with loving my neighbor as I love myself. And I'm like, man, I can't, I can't put those two things together. I can't make them fit together because it doesn't sound like I love my neighbor as I love myself. It sounds more like I'm loving my neighbor with what's left. That's what it sounds like, right? And that's really the kind of the attitude. Love your neighbor with what's left. Rather than love your neighbor as you love yourself, and I just maybe maybe to get specific today, um, this is a global problem. But I just really want to focus in um, and consider the current refugee crisis that's going on in our, in, our, in the world today, especially in Syria, and and just kind of the global movement that's happening that's going on in the world um, and how we're responding to it as a as a nation and as a country. But, even more importantly, how do we respond to it as a believer? Because here's the deal. Let me just set this before you. Sometimes, sometimes, being American and being Christian aren't the same thing. Sometimes. And so I don't know if that surprises you or shakes you up, but I just want to propose that and then prioritize your life around that? that a, a, Am I a follower of Jesus above everything else, above whatever country my name is on a paper on a list? Am I a follower of Jesus? And so I want to consider that today, that just the, the, the people in Syria who have been displaced, who, have, who are considered refugees, who are outside of the borders of their country right now, total up to about 4.9 million people. Not not even considering the 7 million people that have just been internally displaced who are outside of their homes and outside of their cities and pushed to the margins of their country. It's the worst refugee crisis since World War II that we're dealing with. And and, And the way it's going, it's going to surpass that. It's going to be the greatest refugee crisis that ever was recorded in history the way it's going. And so they're displaced because of a civil war that broke out in their country in 2011 that has just gotten exponentially worse. And they haven't been able to return to their homes. Their homes aren't even there anymore. And so today, a majority of these refugees, nearly 95% of them, have, have escaped to bordering countries. Turkey, Iraq, and Jordan. And that's where they are. And so this coming week, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get in our text. But just just so you know, this coming week, uh, we're gonna start um, every day this week. We're gonna we're gonna use our social media account and we're gonna use our website to post ways that we can be praying about this. Because that's that's the right now. If you can't do anything else about it, that's the most important thing you can do: is start praying about how do how do we engage this crisis. But more so, God. What are you going to do, and how can we participate? And so we'll have resources on our website, plus we'll be posting stuff each, um, each day this week. And so here's the deal. Why lean into this idea? Why lean into the, the, the refugee crisis? Why, why even talk about it here today? I think it's biblical. I think it's something that if we're a Jesus people, if we're followers of Jesus, uh, then, then we, our lives are... are Um, primarily directed by this. Like, this is the basis. This is our foundation for everything that we do and everything that we believe and everything that we say. This. Not not documents that's written in some country's history. This primarily. I'm not disregarding anything. I, I think that we live... At a pivotal moment in history, and we are sitting and we are situated as American people to do a whole lot. We have a lot of power, we have a lot of resources to do a lot of things, and I'm grateful for that. What saddens me is that when we close our fists with these resources, and when we don't share, when we're being greedy, or that we respond out of fear, that we don't want to take risks, and that's the part where it conflicts with Scripture. And so the Bible is full of God's commands for for his people to love, to welcome, and to seek justice for refugees and to seek justice for the immigrants, the stranger the Bible would call them. There's a huge passage that I just want to read, but, but we're not going to go there. You know where we're going already. But in Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 34, Jesus is, uh, he's kind of, his ministry is culminating right now, uh, and he's pointed toward the cross, and he goes to uh, verse 34 and says, then the king will say to those on his right, he's talking about what's going to happen when he is glorified. He said, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. So if you've been given something different than what we just read, an interpretation that totally throws out the idea that we're to welcome in strangers and care for those who need cared for and and provide for those who are needy. If you've taken something different from there, from that text, um, if you've interpreted it some way that's less confronting for you. Because that's a confronting text, right? It's confronting we have the story of the Good Samaritan to just kind of build up the walls around it, right? Jesus gives us a story. Look at verse 25 in Luke chapter 10. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a, a lawyer uh, who is literally a, a lawyer of the Mosaic Law. Um, he, he, that's, he, he's literally that, that person uh, which contains about 600 and 13 uh, laws total, with the cornerstone of those laws being the Ten commandments, plus 600 and3 uh, thir- uh, more. So, so it's 6- 613 total commandments, with the cornerstone being the 10 commandments. And now you have also the, what you would call the midrash. All right, So the midrash. Is additional teachings that came from the rabbis, like sermons that the rabbis gave, uh, that reinforced those six hundred and thirteen Mosaic laws, and there were literally thousands of reinforcements around the Mosaic law. And they eventually just kind of got convoluted and, and into the Mosaic law to where they all became laws. Example of this is in uh, the, the the fourth commandment of the Ten in Exodus chapter twenty, verse eight. It says, "Remember the Sabbath." day to keep it holy, right? And so there were 39 other um, regulations that were added to that one commandment to, to identify what would constitute breaking that commandment. 39 others. For example, one of them was uh, you were regulated on how many steps you could take on the Sabbath before it was considered work, and so they would come around those, those kinds of regulations and that became law. And this guy who's asking Jesus the question knows all of them backwards and forwards. He knows them. And he asked this paramount question. The question above all other questions, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I pray that we would all be consumed with this question. I pray that this question would just bother us, that we couldn't move through our day without thinking about that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Because there's no greater, no more important question for any of us to ask in this room than that one right there. And the enemy will distract you and he will distract me with so many other temporal questions like, oh, well, who will I marry? Or uh, how can I advance my career? How's my team gonna do this year? How can I make more money? Like those are the kind of questions that, that are in front of us every day. That we think about and, and and dream about and daydream about and are distracted with every single day. And the most important one you can ask is the one that this lawyer asks, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is an eternal question. The rest of them, they're gonna go away. They're not gonna be worries anymore. And so Jesus is going to answer the most important question in a way that bothers me when anybody else does this. He answers it with a question. It's like I asked the question, I want to answer. Jesus does the the question with a question. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so he, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor." As yourself. So the lawyer quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, right? And he's on track here because you know throughout the scripture, and especially when we get into the New Testament, Jesus is going to affirm that in so many different places that that's, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's the, the idea that permeates all throughout the New Testament love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the paramount commandments, and that's how you acquire eternal life. And so verse 28, he says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's as simple as that, guys. Love God with everything in your being and love your neighbor as yourself. And do you see what Jesus just did there? Like, did you see that, like he says that you inherit eternal life by loving God and loving others? And so this guy now says, but wait, wait a minute. Look at verse 29. Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Something you're going to need to um, remember in, later on in the text um, we're going to get to it, is that um, the man is wanting to know who classifies as a neighbor. That's important to remember. That He's asking, who's my neighbor? Who classifies as my neighbor? Is the guy who lives next door? Uh, is it the guy I work with? Is it uh, just people that I happen up on? Like, who, who classifies as my neighbor? Who is it that I'm supposed to love so that I measure up to the requirement of eternal life? What's the bare minimum? What's the bare minimum that I have to do to acquire eternal life? And so this leads to Jesus to tell him a story. And every time Jesus tells a story, man, we really need to just kind of turn our ears on and listen because he's fixing to give some profound stuff. And so he replies, okay, story time, story time. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And so just to kind of do some context work here, um, I actually got on Google Earth last night because uh, just to verify these things. It's pretty, pretty neat. Um, but Jerusalem to Jericho is roughly about 17 miles as a crow flies. Um, the, the, the important thing to know about it is Jerusalem sits at about 3,000, just a little over, or just a little under 3,000 uh, feet of elevation, at elevation, right? And so Jericho is nearly 1,000 feet below elevation. Jericho sits in a hole and Jerusalem sits up on a mountain. And 17 miles as a crow flies, imagine how steep that is. Imagine how steep the walk is. It's nearly straight down the mountain. And when you get down to the bottom, Jericho's down there. And, and so just thinking about topography and how things work, um, there are lots of crevices and caves and things along down this road, cracks and, and, and areas where robbers and people could hide out and tuck themselves away. Um, And so the traveling man, who was quite possibly a Jewish man, we don't know, like the Scripture doesn't say, and this is a parable, this is a story that Jesus is telling, uh, was attacked, he was wounded, he was beaten, robbed, stripped, and left for dead. And look at the first part of 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. That's good news. Great news, because a priest... Would know that the law teaches to care for those in need. So, this is good that a priest shows up, right? Because this guy needs help. And and the priest is going to be able to, to, to help him because he knows the law. He knows what's commanded there. And so, this is a relief. And look at the last part. He says, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Literally looked at the man, turned, and walked away from him in the other direction. What's sad to me at that point, and and again, this is this is just we don't have, we don't know exactly what's going on at this moment. um, But I wonder if that lawyer was appalled at this moment, if he was just outdone that a priest would just look at a man in need and walk around him. I doubt he would. I doubt he would be appalled by it. He's just tuning in because he's still wanting to know what he's got to do. He's still wanting to know his bare minimum. In verse 32, it says, So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass, he passed on the other side. So priests were primarily responsible for the sacrifice in the temple. Um, they were, their, their duties were sacrificial duties. The Levite was kind of the, the helper in the temple. Um, he was the one who would, um, who would basically maintain and clean and make sure everything was there. Uh, so that was those two roles. And at this point, if... You're the lawyer. What you're thinking, what you're thinking is if these two didn't care, then who's going to care? If these two who are who know the law forwards and backwards and are given to us by God to serve for and care for and 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 look after, like if they don't do it, who will do it? And look at verse 33. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. A Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus delivers a fatal blow right there. He goes straight for the jugular right there when he says that. Compassion, If you, just to break it down, compassion doesn't mean feeling sorry for someone. Compassion doesn't mean here's 20 bucks, have a good day. Compassion literally means entering into someone's pain with them. That's what compassion is. So when you show compassion, what that means is you're walking with someone through trouble, through trial, through hurt, through pain. That's what compassion is. It's much different than saying, I'll pray for you. It's much different than that. And so this Samaritan shows him compassion. The dreaded. Half-breed that was despised by everyone, this Samaritan that everyone hated, that's who shows him compassion, the hated one. The hated one stopped when no one else would. When the priest would walk by and literally walk around, when the Levite would walk literally around, the despised one was the one who stopped to show compassion. And you think about this journey um, and that going down. Look at verse 34. He says, he, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. This healing him. Trying to, trying to address his needs. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He bandaged the man's wounds. He stooped down and he got his hands dirty and he began addressing the man's wounds. And he did all of this with his own resources. With what he had He addressed this man's need. He didn't wait for the government to do something about it. He didn't wait for someone else who was more equipped to address the situation. He saw it and He addressed it. And He did whatever it took to address this man's need. Whatever it took. And and the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Whatever it takes. Our attitude toward caring for the least of these should always be whatever it takes. If we can, we will. Period. Period. And so at this point, the lawyer, as well as you and I, Jesus, if we're in this conversation, we're stunned into silence right now. We're like, are you serious? A Samaritan has done all of these things? Then Jesus does the most profound thing that I've ever seen. He says, which of these three do you think Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Jesus has totally reversed the question. He has turned the question completely around. Throughout story time, the lawyer, as well as you and as well as I, we've placed ourselves in the, in the, in the wounded man's shoes. That's where we've been. Like, okay, I'm listening. That's, that's me. Right? We do this a lot. We try to pick and choose where we're going to put our, our, our person or, or our life. I want you to recall the original question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus turns around and says, who was a neighbor of the three, not the wounded man, of the priest, of the Levite, of the Samaritan? Who was a neighbor to the man? Isn't that like that spun me on my head? Because here's the deal. It's not about determining who your neighbor is. Like, who's my neighbor? Who do I need to go love like I love myself? It's not determining who your neighbor is. It's about defining what it means to be a neighbor. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's like, listen, it's, it's not about the, the, the wounded guy. and, and who's, it's, it's about your heart. It's about who are you being a neighbor to? Who are you loving like you love yourself? And so look at verse 37. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So once again, Jesus says, dude, you've got all the right answers. Every time I ask a question, you got the right answer. And I keep telling you, yes, you're right, do that. But, 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 but wait, what about this? You're right, go do that. Notice that this guy couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Couldn't even say the word so despised, so hated that he said, well, the one who showed him compassion, the one who cared for him, that's the one who was a neighbor. And so Jesus has shaken this man's world. And there's some misinterpretations about this scripture, and I've kind of already touched on them a little bit, but like breaking out different details of this story to kind of put your own um, character, your own lifestyle into that. Each person represents an idea. Um, I've heard this. I've heard, I literally heard this verse taught, where the, the man, uh, the, the the wounded man, is, is wounded by sin, and the Samaritan is Jesus coming by, uh, and he uh, he's going to provide the healing for the man. And the inn is the church, and the the, uh, the, the priest and the Levite there, the law and the sacrifice. Like I've heard it done like that before, and it just totally doesn't. It takes away from the entire story, or we would say it's just a general idea of helping people. Right, we'll take that verse and we'll say, we need to help refugees and we need to help immigrants and we need to help those who are, who are needy and who are wounded and who are sick and who can, who can use some compassion. Like, We could take it and make it a general idea about that. When someone's hungry, you feed them, right? Or when someone needs help, you just help them. I believe something so much bigger is going on in this text. Let's look back at what provoked the story time in the first place. Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's what started the whole conversation. That's what started the whole story. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So now don't you see it's it's really not so much about just, you know, this story's about helping people. This story is about being compassionate. This story is going much deeper than that. I believe that This whole dialogue is going on because Jesus is telling a story about needing a new heart. Like he's going down this road to say, man, you need a new heart. That's what it takes to get eternal life, a brand new heart. And so why does Jesus take us on this whole journey with the priest and the Levite like as soon as he mentions the Samaritan as the hero, there's going to rise up in this man a deep-seated hatred. And that's what Jesus is wanting to expose. He's going to tell this whole story and say, I want to expose something in your heart because you're, you're asking me, what's it take to get eternal life? And then you want to know what the bare minimum is. And so let me show you something in your heart. That has to go. That deep-seated hatred, it has to go. He's exposing this lack of mercy and love in this man's heart. And so anyone can tell a story in the world today about someone who's in need, right? And, uh, and how someone should take care of them. But the biblical gospel picture of mercy um, that we're seeing... that's that's not what we're seeing here. What we're seeing is something that exposing your heart, right? We're seeing something that if it's not changed, this is going to inhibit your ability to show compassion and show care and to show kindness to the world around you. Like that's what's going on here. This is a, this is a story about your heart and, being, and having things exposed in your heart. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of this time, I just wanted to walk through that text and just kind of insert some comments about what's going on, um, is to just kind of shine a light on how do we do that? How do we walk in a rhythm of mercy? As followers of Jesus Christ, how do we do that? We, got, we, have, to take, we have to go back to where the the, the mandate has been given by God that we've already established that there are uh, two main requirements that the law has absolute love for God and selfless love for others like that's what we know that's what we've established and you now you think about the Samaritan think about a story a more contemporary story today you think about what's going on example just maybe walking down a street and there's a dark alley with someone getting robbed or beaten what's your first instinct what's your first move is it to run to it or to run away from it? What's your next move? I want you to be too hard on the priest and the Levite. I've learned not to be so hard on the priest and the Levite because sometimes my first move is not just to, to barrel into danger. It's to run away from it. We're going to get some help or I'm going to go call 911 or something. Like that. It's not to just run straight into it. And so you put yourself in this story and without hesitation or question, the Samaritan goes to care for the man. Run straight in. He's walking in this rhythm of mercy. It's a lifestyle for him. When he sees compassion, when he sees a need, he runs straight to it. And so how do we get here? How do we get to where we're walking in this rhythm? That we, I, we're just, we have a lifestyle that is defined by compassion. You're never going to be able to show kind the, the kind of love and compassion that God calls for until you've received love and compassion from God, if that makes sense. Like, I'm never going to be able to fully be compassionate and kind and merciful towards someone unless I've first been shown compassion and kindness and mercy from God himself. That's the only way that I'm going to be able to do this. In order to care for those in need, I have to realize my own neediness. I have to realize that. And so what Jesus is doing in the heart of this lawyer, like you look at, this is what he's showing him, right? Like you're in need also. You need the gospel also. And so what if this, like if this conversation, think about it, um, what if the conversation went like this and the lawyer said, oh, I can't do that. Like I, I can't pull that off. Have mercy on me, oh God. The conversation I think would have probably taken a different turn. I don't think we would have got the story If his response would have been, oh, I don't measure up, there's no way that I would be able to do that. Love God with everything that I am, with absolute love, and then selflessly loving my neighbor just like I love myself, I don't measure up. But he thought he was measuring up. He wanted to make sure he was measuring up. And so just like the lawyer, I think we too, we put ourselves in the place of this man who was robbed, right? We kind of established that already, that we're the ones robbed and we're the ones beaten and we're the ones in need. But the key point that Jesus is trying to communicate is that we are to reflect the love of God that has been shown to us. We exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. This is how we reflect him. This is how we do that. And so your love for others is rooted and grounded and has all of its basis. Your love for others is rooted in the soil of your love for God. Period. God's love compels us. 2 Corinthians 5 would say, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us. That love that I receive from Christ drives my every step, my every thought, because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live, those who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of God compels us and moves us and pushes us. Our motivation to care for those in need does not come out of guilt. We're not motivated by guilt, or I hope we're not motivated by guilt. That's a poor way to show compassion. We are motivated by the gospel. A transformed heart will overflow with mercy. That's where all of our our compassion, all of our care, all of our love, it's rooted out of what the gospel has done, what Christ has done in me. And now I'm compelled to go do the same thing. And a common rejection that that you're probably asking, that I would ask, that many people would ask is, okay, are we really supposed to care for people in need? What if they brought it on themselves? Like what if they got their self in that position? Are we still supposed to care for them then? Mercy is the rally cry of the church. Mercy is the rally cry of the church and it does not restrict who we love. Mercy doesn't restrict who's loved. And so the typical questions, right? Okay, well, how far far do we go with this? How far do I go down that road with someone? How many more days will the wounded man be in the end? And I'm going to have to keep coming out of my pocket. And keep providing to try to take care of how, how far down the road do I get? Isn't that the government's job? Like, isn't that the government's job to take care of that? To provide, provide systems and resources so that those who are less fortunate can, can kind of survive? Isn't that, notes aside, it is not the job Of the government to show compassion and care and love in this world. It is not. The government is doing it because the church has failed our world. And so let's switch it back around because here's the deal. I see this all the time. Good, well-intended believers, uh, followers of Jesus would say, well, government's doing a terrible job and they need to fix what they're doing and they need to, their systems need to be corrected and on and on and on and on. All the while, they don't know that the government's just trying to pick up their slack the government picks up our slack i pray for the day that the church would love their neighbor as they love themselves i pray for that day because when that day happens the world is going to be flipped right side up the world will be flipped right side up well i hardly Blake I hardly have enough to care for myself like we bar- we're barely making ends meet ourselves and jesus says I know. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Don't love your neighbor with what's left. Love him as you love yourself. Mercy from God. And here's a a big takeaway. Mercy takes risk. Mercy takes risk. Do you think that the Samaritan who showed the man compassion took a risk? He's given him everything that he, he has on him. And, and it, look, here's what I got today. If, if you rack up more charges, I'll figure it out and I'll take care of it. Make sure that the man is cared for. Make sure that he's taken care of. Make sure that he has a place to stay. Make sure that he's not running from war and terror and hardship only to say, thanks, but no thanks. Shut the door. Shame on us when we ignore opportunities to show compassion. Shame on us when we say, well, you know what? We're going to take care of our own first. Thank God Jesus didn't do that. The Gospel says something so much different. Priest, Levite, Samaritan, all three of these men saw the need. They all saw it. They all walked by it. They all put their eyes on it. But only one of them steps out and takes a risk. Only one. And it costs the Samaritan, and it will cost every individual. It will, it will cost every family, and it will cost every church. And in order to care for those in need, you have to realize your own neediness you have to realize that you started at zero. You started at ground level. And the only way that you're here sitting in a chair today is by the grace of God that was given to you. Nothing that you worked toward or earned so that you have no right to boast, no right to say, well, I'm doing my own thing. Why can't they do their own thing? That idea is also anti-gospel. I work hard. Why should I take care of somebody who doesn't work hard? I'm up early in the morning to make sure that my stuff's taken care of. Why do I got to make sure his stuff's taken care of if he's not? That's all anti-gospel attitude. And for those who've, those who've experienced the grace and mercy and love and compassion and healing from Jesus, above all other people should know that. Anyone can choose to be nice, right? I know a lot of people who reject Jesus, actively reject Jesus, who are nice people. They're good people. They, they are kind toward others. They don't even know Jesus. So anybody can choose to be good. Anybody can choose to be nice. But only those who walk in a rhythm of mercy, who have been undone by the gospel can live a lifestyle and can walk in that rhythm. Only those of us who have been wrecked by Jesus can walk in a rhythm of mercy and grace. And so the most important thing we need to see here that Jesus was showing us in this text is not how to help your neighbor. He's not showing us good creative ways or who's more compassionate than the other, what he's showing us is that in order to show the kind of mercy that God requires, in order to love God and love my neighbor as I love myself, I have to completely be undone by the gospel. That Jesus has to completely undo me and untangle me and give me a new heart. I have to understand and know what mercy is. I have to be shown what mercy and compassion is in order to reflect that. And so, I want you to consider that today. I don't. The gospel is not for those of us who've yet to believe. It is most certainly that, but I would be incomplete in saying um, that's who that's who the gospel is for. The gospel is for every one of us in the room. And I would hope that through the preaching of the gospel, showing you your need for Christ. Yes, Christ brings about salvation, but He also brings about life and a rhythm of mercy and kindness and compassion. And so if you struggle with that today, like if you're kind of going back and forth and, man, I, don't, you know, I, I have a hard time doing that, what Jesus wants to do here is expose something in your heart. Don't just run out of here today and say, well, you know what? Uh, Blake said we need to care for refugees and immigrants, and so we need to go figure that out. That's, that's not what we're, we're, we're going to do that today. Um, that's probably not even a helpful thing to do. It's just what you need to do is consider where your heart is and then consider how you engage. What is the best way to help? What is the best way to show compassion and kindness? There could have been a lot of other things that a Samaritan man would have done alongside a road to, to help someone. You know, like here's a first aid kit. We're gone, right? But that's not how it went. Consider what's needed and then lean into that. And so this week, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this in prayer, but I just want to know, in this, for you to know this week, uh, there will be resources at your fingertips all week if you're on the internet at all. Um, we're going to try to put those things out before you so that you can understand, know, and engage uh, the, what I've been calling it, what the world's been calling it, an absolute crisis, a crisis on a global scale. And if the church won't do anything about it, who will? If the church won't do anything about it, who will? So let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you tonight.